My mom gave me uh, something a couple of weeks ago that was part of my Christmas memories growing up. It's a lamp. You can see it in my office. I've got it in there. I don't think I turned it on this morning, but there's a part inside that goes around and it has slots cut in it and the outside is a snowy scene and when the inside goes around it looks like snow going around there and and of course, I, I was born in uh, New York, uh, where the snow gets considerably deep, uh, you know, in the Buffalo zone, if you will, back there where there's so much snow. And I, I just loved looking at that lamp at Christmas time. It's a miracle that it's survived all these years. Uh, she said it's at least as old as I am. And, uh, you know, and it all works. <laughs> and uh, it's all there. That's an incredible thing. It was magical to me as, as a young child, uh, as Christmas was, and uh, I don't remember being taught to believe in Santa Claus, but there was this magical appearance of presents on Christmas morning that weren't there the night before, and, uh, and so that made going to bed and going to sleep very hard for me, but uh, I did it because I knew the sooner I got to sleep, the sooner I could get up. Of course, then I had to twiddle my thumbs and wait for everybody else to wake up uh, in the morning. And now, now I'm that old man saying, please, can I sleep just a little bit longer? Oh. As I got older, I realized that those presents don't appear out of nowhere. They were hidden somewhere. And I thought, hmm, we don't have that big of a house. <laughs> When I was 10 or 11 or right in that age range, I thought, they've got to be here somewhere. You know, this is a small three-bedroom house. <laughs> and I looked and I looked and I looked and I, and I looked up and there was the attic access panel. I thought, that has to be where they are. And so I got a chair or a stool or something and I reached up and pushed up and there they were staring me in the face. And I thought, okay, I've found them. And so I very gently eased open the end of one of them. They were already wrapped. And it was a Monopoly game. And I was so disappointed. <laughs> now, I've been playing Monopoly since I could read, basically. I, I, I love the game, and I'm fairly good at it, and I enjoyed it. But I thought, a Monopoly game for Christmas? I don't want that. I want something that shoots bullets or flies in the air or has an electric motor of some kind. Oh. And so then I was in a problem because that was several days before Christmas and I knew what I was getting and I didn't want it. Oh, what a letdown, you know. I'm sure I put a game face on. In Luke chapter 1, Zacharias could not have been more excited. He knew what was coming, and when it came, he said, this is exactly what I've been waiting for. Please follow as I read from Luke chapter 1. Sue, I left the remote in the office. Thank you. Luke chapter 1, I'm going to start reading in verse 67. And if you remember Zacharias, he's the father of John the Baptist. And, uh, you know, there's more to the story earlier in the chapter, but we're going to read his response when John the Baptist was born. Now his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, 
Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, this is talking about John the Baptist now, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God with which the dayspring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our way into the into, guide our feet into the way of peace. Zacharias was so excited because when he heard the message from the angel about who his son would be, and then when that came to pass as his son was born, he said, "This is it. My son is the forerunner. That means the savior is coming." And he was so excited about it because that meant salvation was coming for him. Now I want to ask the question today, what did salvation mean to him? Because he said, God's salvation is coming. And I want you to understand that it meant several things. First of all, I believe that he understood that salvation would mean deliverance from the devil. Look at verse 71 and verse 74. Verse 71, he said, this present that is coming from God means we will be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verse 74, to grant that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Now I'm sure that when Zacharias uh, spoke those words and I'm sure what was going through his mind had to do with Rome. Because Israel was under the domination of Rome. If you don't know that, that in the time of Christ, Rome ruled what we would call the civilized world. All around the Mediterranean and so on, and the, the north part of Africa, Rome ruled. And, uh, and I'm sure he was thinking, oh man, the Savior is coming. He will throw off the oppression of Rome and we will be free. We will be saved from our enemies. But I'm guessing he also anticipated the deliverance from the greatest enemy of all because that deliverance was promised when the first sin came and Zacharias, being a godly man, would have been familiar with the scripture from the very beginning of the Old Testament. When Adam and Eve sinned, God said this to Satan. So God said to the serpent, because you have done this, because you have tempted Adam and Eve and, and uh, they have sinned, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and you will eat dust all the days of your life. That obviously has to do with the physical creature that the devil inhabited or possessed. But this part has to do with him. I will put enmity or warfare or hatred between you and the woman, 
between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now this doesn't tell the whole story, but the rest of the scripture opens the story up to us. But we find out because Satan sinned and he tempted Adam and Eve, God cursed him and the curse involves the person of Christ. He said, you are going to try to come after him, but the net effect will be bruising the heel. And he is going to come after you, and the net effect will be bruising your head. The devil is our greatest enemy. The New Testament enlarges on this theme greatly. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we, believers, Christians, are of God, but the whole rest of the world, all those who are unbelievers, lies under the sway of the wicked one. And when the scripture says the, with a definite article, it's always referring to Satan. Look at this from Revelation chapter 12. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. And from John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil. Jesus was talking to some people who did not believe in him. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. God made a clear boundary with Eve. He said, Eve, you can eat from all of the uh, trees of the garden, but of that particular tree, don't you eat from it. If you eat from it, you are going to be punished with death, both physical and spiritual. And Satan came along and told her lies and deceived her, and by his lies and deception, he created a desire within her, and she looked at that and said, I have to have that. Because I know that I will be just like God after I eat it. Now, where did she learn that? She didn't learn it from God. She learned it from Satan. Satan told her lies. And she acted on those lies of her own will. He did not make her sin, but he told her the lies. And Satan is doing the same thing today that he did with Eve. He comes along through the world when God clearly says, don't go there, don't do that, stay away from that. And Satan comes along and says, did God say sex is only for marriage? Or is it only for a loving relationship? And people meditate on that long enough with their desire and they run right to that wicked thing. And he comes along and says, is marriage only for one man and one woman? Or is it just about a loving relationship? Is it really till death cause us to part? You know, we aren't hardwired for fidelity. It's not natural. Did God say that unborn children are actually human beings with souls? Did God say you will be held to account for the way you live and for what you have done with Christ? Did God really say that or are there many paths? 
The difference between us and Eve is that Satan isn't talking to us directly. He does it through the society in which we live. Ephesians 2 makes this clear when it calls him the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience. Listen to this description of what will come in the last days from 2 Timothy 3. In the last days, perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness that is looking religious but denying its power. I had a friend this week who was talking about a situation in which he was dealing with a parent and child and, and, uh, and had to you know, tell the parent some things that wouldn't be good for the child to do. And the parent said, if my kid wants to do that stuff, that is his business and you've got no business telling me about it. Now, if I were to tell you the exact circumstance, you'd go, ooh, that child should not be doing that. That's going to be deadly ill for that child. But this parent will defend to the death their child's right to do whatever they want to do. Friends, that is the doctrine of the devil. And he has so deceived our world to thinking about individual rights and and uh, and the fact that nobody can judge me, and the fact that there is no such thing as truth, and so on and so forth, that our world has gone upside down. The devil is the reason for the ills in our society, whether you know it or not. And you need to be saved from the devil's power and influence. When Zacharias became aware that the Savior promised to Eve was about to come into the world, he was overcome with joy at the prospect of the defeat of Satan. And we have that defeat confirmed in many places like this. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifest, or came into the world, was made seen, that he might destroy the works of the devil. We don't often think about the devil when we think about Christmas, but you need to understand Christmas means to us that Jesus has come and the devil is on a short chain headed for the bottomless pit. We are going to be saved from the devil. That has not happened yet, but it is coming for us. Salvation to Zacharias also meant this. It meant deliverance from evil governments. And no doubt when he talked about deliverance from enemies, he was thinking about those things. Look at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited. In other words, he has come. We have been languishing, and now he has come and redeemed his people. It's interesting that Zacharias sees salvation as an accomplished fact right from the beginning, even before Jesus was born. It's happened. It's that certain. Look at verse 69. And he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. In verse 71, 
that we should be saved from our enemies. In verse 74, that we, we should be delivered from our enemies so we can serve him without fear. God related to the nation of Israel and the Jewish people corporately as well as individuals. When we think of Christianity, we tend, especially in America, to think primarily of me and God or me and Jesus. We are in a relationship and we don't emphasize so much the body of Christ. I am part of the body and part of this whole thing with Christ as the head and God as my father and so on. In the nation of Israel, it was primarily a corporate thing, but also an individual thing. And so when God related to them, it was called a theocracy. That is a rule by God, not a democracy, not a monarchy, but a theocracy. And God ruled them directly through the priests and later the kings. And so his promises to them also include a future perfect kingdom on earth with the promised Savior, the Messiah, ruling from Jerusalem. Zacharias surely would have been familiar with these scriptures from the Old Testament. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed or his chosen one. Now therefore, this is, this is God talking to David when David came to him and said, I want to build you a temple, a, a suitable place, not just a temporary dwelling. Now therefore, God says to David, thus you shall say to, or talking to the prophet who would talk to David, you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed, your son after you, who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. If, you're, if you want to know the theological term, this is called the Davidic covenant. The David covenant. The covenant God made with David. And God made a covenant essentially saying, I mean, if, if David's son, if somebody from his family will be on the throne forever, that's the same as saying, David, somebody out of your body, your son, your dynasty will always be on the throne of Israel. And of course, this is expanded as the Old Testament develops and as the years go by till we come to this in Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. When we read that, we immediately think Christmas. And we should. And we tend to gloss over the word government. Because the promise to the Old Testament believer was societal salvation as well as the individual salvation. And what I mean by societal salvation, I mean that the Son of God would not only come and be their Savior, but He would sit on the throne in Jerusalem and rule Israel and the world with a rod of iron, the Old Testament says. And they looked forward to that. Now, unfortunately, many of the Old Testament saints got fixated on the word government and missed some of the rest of that prophecy that went along with for the kingdom of Christ. And that's why when Jesus came, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and even the disciples, they're looking for a political kingdom. And when he talks spiritual kingdom, spiritual kingdom, spiritual kingdom, they're going, what are you talking about? 
because they had missed the whole, the whole story and settled for half of the story. But there is a half of that story which says this. In the days of these kings, in the prediction that Daniel was given, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. The prediction of the Messiah's kingdom is when he comes, that's it. That's the complete and total kingdom, and he will be there forever. Now, listen to what the book of Revelation says about this kingdom. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. He gets one last chance and then he's completely put down by God. But look at the kingdom. And I saw thrones. And they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The kingdom that Zacharias anticipated, no doubt he thought, when, when, when his son was born as the forerunner and then he knew Jesus was coming right away, he thought he is going to grow up and he is going to stand up one day on, in the temple in Jerusalem and that's going to be it. Boom! The kingdom is going to start. What I've been reading from Daniel and Samuel and, and Isaiah, it's going to start. Now he didn't know there were some other things that needed to happen first, like Christ dying on the cross to pay for our sins. And he didn't know there was going to be a time frame that intervened between the two. And he didn't know that a day is coming when those of us who believe in Christ get to reign with Christ in his kingdom. Romans 8 says this, if, if children of God, that's us, if we have believed we're children of God, then we're also heirs. If you don't recognize that word, it means an inheritor. We are heirs heirs of God, and joint inheritors with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we, also, we may also be glorified with him. And also from uh, 2 Timothy, if we endure, we will reign with him. Do you understand? Uh, do you ever joke in your house about the inheritance? going to write you out of the inheritance we laugh about that you know one of the kids will do something a little mean that's it you're out of the will See, that's what he's talking about the will now if you know your bible that because jesus christ submitted himself to the death burial and resurrection and the life on earth because of that what has god given him the universe the whole thing that's his inheritance. Now, what does that say about you? You're a co-inheritor. Can you imagine? Uh, can you imagine 
Christ on the throne. You get to be over here. Some of us will be out here. But we're going to rule with him. Is there some changes you'd make in the government if you were one of those rulers? In part, you won't have to make any changes because he'll be on the throne. We get to rule with him. That's when this world is going to change. It's going to get more and more wicked. Now, I'm all for Christians being in the government. Do what you can. Make the laws you can. But I'm here to tell you, folks, that's the day on which our world will change. And that's part and parcel of our salvation. This world is a wicked place, and sometimes it makes us sad, and sometimes it makes us angry. And we try to do things, and, and we elect some different people, and we go, now it'll be better. And two years later, we go, oh, we need some new people. And two years later, we need some more new people. Because Satan is infusing this world with his ideas. But someday, Christ will sit on the throne, Satan will be chained in the abyss, and this will be a glorious place. And Zacharias eagerly anticipated that kingdom. He just didn't know it was going to take a while for it to come. But it's going to come for us. Christ will rule, and we will rule with him. And Zacharias anticipated a salvation that included the conclusion of Satan's work and deliverance from all evil governments. And I believe he, he understood that salvation also meant one other thing. Salvation means deliverance from personal sin. Look back at Luke chapter 1, verse 5. This is the beginning of Zacharias' story, Zacharias and uh, his wife Elizabeth. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judah, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Now, I'd like you to think with me for a minute about what that means. Zacharias was a godly man. In case you don't know it, you got to be a priest by being born in the right family. And that's not nepotism like we would see it today. That's because only, <clears throat> only a certain tribe was to be the priests. And so if you're in that tribe, and in fact, the way this would have worked in his lifetime was he would not have been at the temple all the time. He would have had certain tours of duty, if you will, but he would have been at his home, uh, wherever that was, uh, and you know, farming and taking care of his business and supporting himself. And then there would come a time when he would go, maybe for a month at a time, and serve in, in the temple. That's part of the miracle here. The scripture says it, it fell to him by lot. In other words, the way they, cho they chose the priest to go in and do the incense was they, they, they rolled some dice, for lack of a better term. They said, oh, it's your turn today. And so he went in with the innocence. And you know, God guided in that whole process. He didn't get into being a priest because he was such a godly guy. He was born there, and he got this, this responsibility. But in addition to being born into the priestly family, it says he was a godly man walking in all of those Old Testament ordinances. Now, do you remember another guy who could say that about his own life? In the Bible? 
There's one. The Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul said, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. By birth and by practice, I was zealous for God. And did he need to be saved? Yes, he did. In fact, the Apostle Paul understood the difference between law and transformation very carefully, and he wrote this. When we were in the flesh, that is, before we believed in Christ and were transformed, when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I, I am fleshly, sold under sin. The Apostle Paul said, I knew all those laws and I did my best to keep them all. But at the same time, that law stirred up my sinful urges. If that happened for Paul, that also happened for Zacharias. Let me just put it this way to you, Christian. Do you know the difficulty, the uncomfortableness of wanting not to sin and still struggling with it? I think if you're alive, you do. But Zacharias didn't even have the Holy Spirit inside like we have to help us say no. He was an Old Testament believer. So he he believed in God and he lived out his life as best he could believing in God. But he knew that internal challenge and, and, and the temptation to sin. And he knew the guilt of failure. But he also knew that a Savior was coming. Look at this. I put this up from the end of the passage to highlight some things. He said, he said, John, you have, he's talking about his son coming to prepare for the Savior. He said, you're going to give the knowledge of salvation to God's people by the remission of their sins. In other words, he said, you're going to go out and preach so that people know the way they are forgiven is when God takes away sin. Through the tender mercy, where will this forgiveness of sins come from? It will come through the tender mercy of God with which the day spring from on high has visited us. The word day spring is kind of the word they would use for, for something rising up. And so it came to be a term for the, like the sun rising, if you will. But it literally says it's the rising up from on high. So something, something is going to rise up, but it's going to come out of heaven and what's, what comes out of heaven is that which will take away sin. And he says it's going to come because of the tender mercy of God. God loves us. That's why he sent the Savior. And what's that salvation going to do? It's going to give light. It's going to give guidance to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zacharias would have been very familiar with this Old Testament passage. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. We, we use the term Old Testament when we talk about half of the Bible. They could also use the word covenant. It's the same word there. And there was an old covenant with God's people. And he says, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the one that I made before, on the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the, hand, the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband, I was true to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law 
in their mind, and I will write it on their heart, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now the whole prophecy here is talking about the day that will come someday when everybody is a believer. That day is yet future. And it's not saying everybody who's ever lived will be a believer. It's talking about the day when only believers are surviving and everybody else has been condemned to hell. But the process whereby that happens involves a new covenant a new covenant that is writing of God's truth in the mind and the heart. What's he saying? What's he say, saying is this. The old covenant, the law was written on the stone and you had to come up and read it or it was written on a scroll and you had to come and read it. He says, I'm going to change you internally so that my truth comes in. Christ talked to the disciples about the Holy Spirit coming. He said, he's going to be in you and he's going to bring to your remembrance the things that I've told you. And that's our privilege as a believer to have the Holy Spirit in us, giving us guidance and transformation. Zacharias was looking forward to that new heart and that new mind. As an Old Testament believer, Zacharias had an awareness of his sin and a need for salvation, but before people come to salvation today, most people are like verse 79 infers, completely in the dark. When I was a firefighter, we had a call for smoke in a residence. And, uh, you know, they try to describe what's happening as best they can, so you're not too alarmed, but you're aware, that sort of thing. The 911 op, what we found out later in the conversation was a person called in and said, there's smoke in my house. And they said, what's your address? And they said, I don't know. And they said, well, go out and read the house numbers on your house. And the lady said, I'm blind, I can't read. No joke. She really didn't quite know why there was smoke in her house either. Friend, if you've never believed in Christ, you need to know that sin is blinding you. But it, and you need Christ, whether you think you do or not. If you're here and you do know Christ, you need to rejoice in the threefold deliverance that he's given us from Satan, from the wickedness of the world, and from our own sin. And you need to help those who are blind, who cannot see, to understand how great our salvation is. Father, help us. We are dim of sight. And Father, there may be people here today whose sight is just plain blackened by sin, and they can't see what's going on. Please reveal yourself to them. Please pull back the curtains that are hanging over their eyes. Father, for those of us who have come to believe in your wonderful Son, help us to praise him for who he is and what he's done and for what that salvation means to us. And help us to take that message to those around us. I pray in Christ's name, amen.